listening to the Jelly Donut Podcast. I'm Ryan, your host. Join me as I talk to the best and brightest in finance and economics. We'll go beyond just theory and discuss some of the most important real-world macro questions of our time. What happens next and how does all of this end? Pull up a seat and listen in. We'll talk about it coming up next. Today's show is brought to you by Kova Coffee. Kova is a specialty roaster out of Portland, Oregon, and they specialize in single-origin coffees. They're committed to long-term, sustainable partnerships with coffee producers. Now, if you're like me, I love coffee. I like to start off with usually one or two cups. I make it by hand at home with a pour-over, but it doesn't matter how you make it. You could be using a Mr. Coffee machine. It doesn't matter, but what does matter is the beans. You have to start with really high quality beans and you'll always make sure you have a great cup. So just say no to those burnt, over-roasted corporate coffee beans that you find at a grocery store and upgrade your coffee game. I'm going to make it real easy for you. Here's what you do. Just go to covacoffee.com, that's C-O-A-V-A, coffee.com, and use our code JDP10. That's jdp one zero and you get $5 off your first purchase. Do it right now while you're thinking about it. You'll be happy you did. I want to welcome our newest sponsor, Baron Fig. Whether you need pens, notebooks, or bags, they have you covered. Baron Fig makes tools for thinking, and they'll help you do your best thinking at home, work, and in between. And if you're a podcast fan, the small little notebooks they have are great for taking notes to refer back to later. I've been using their products now for gosh, over five years, and I love the craftsmanship and attention to detail. So if you like the podcast, show your support to Baron Fig. Go to baronfig.com and use our code JDP10, that's JDP10, and you'll get 10% off your first purchase. So go check it out right now while you're thinking about it. Today in the show, we have Ben Eifert. Ben is the managing member and CIO of QVR Advisors. He was previously co-founder and co-portfolio manager of Mariner, Coria, in New York. Before that, he was head of quantitative research and derivatives trader for the Wells Fargo Prop Desk, which became Overland Advisors. He has taught extensively in the Master's in Financial Engineering program at UC Berkeley and started his career as an emerging markets macroeconomist at the World Bank. He holds a PhD in Econ from UC Berkeley and a BA in Econ and International Relations from Stanford. Join my conversation with Ben Eifert. Ben, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks. Great to be here. Well, it's great to have you here. So the first question I'd like to start out with is take us back to 2008, global financial crisis, what you were doing at the time, where you were working, and uh, take us back. Sure, absolutely. So I was a, a desk quant at a smaller hedge fund called Golden State Asset Management up in uh, the beautiful city of Sausalito uh, in Marin County, uh, north of California, north of uh, San Francisco across the Golden Gate Bridge. And we were relatively small at the time trying to get going. I think we were managing maybe $30 million or something. And it was in the middle of 2008. So there was 
you know, opportunity everywhere. We were trading uh, convertible bond arbitrage and volatility arbitrage, uh, CDS cash basis, uh, relative value in in CDS, uh, and a variety of other things. So it was uh, it was great fun. And then uh, shortly after that, I actually m- moved over to the Wells Fargo uh, prop desk, which you know few people even remember Wells Fargo had a, a prop desk. But the important thing about Wells Fargo prop desk wasn't necessarily that we were the most brilliant people in the world it w- on, you know, on Wall Street, it was that it was the only prop desk that happened to be at a bank that really had no problems in 2008 of any material variety, right? Wells Fargo was very conservative, had a very strong balance sheet. And, and so we were able to be extremely aggressive uh, through, through the crisis and, uh, and out on into 2009 and 2010, which, uh, which was a super opportunity. Great. And let's bring it to present day and talk a little bit about QVR advisors and what you do there. And then we can get into some of the market action that's been happening. Sure. Q- QVR is a you know, boutique asset management firm focused on uh, volatility and derivatives. We manage a, a relative value strategy. Um, we manage bespoke uh, mandates for large institutional investors uh, that are often either more on the hedging side or on the, uh, call it, you know, hedged equity or alternative yield side um, that are, you know, designed in collaboration with those clients to meet their needs. Um, we, uh, we don't have any commingled, uh, you know, products that we, that we market. Um, and we're heavily involved in, you know, all things, you know, global volatility cross-asset class. Great. And right now, volatility is the hot topic in the news. So let's break down volatility. As you talked about with QVR, you're developing these certain strategies depending on each investor and large pension plans have been putting on these systematic hedging strategies where they're Maybe they burn one to two percent a year, um, and this is you know supposed to be for the downside protection. Let's talk a little bit about each type of uh, kind of volatility strategy. So you have, and you've talked about these in the past, so we can kind of touch on them first and then go in a little more detail. So the first one being a kind of an APR program, structured tail risk. The second being more vanilla-like dispersion strategies. And then the third being the institutional option selling or put writing. Sure. Uh, so, you know, just to elaborate a little on, on what those are um, in the context of, you know, so head, so systematic hedging strategies among uh, large institutional investors, I would say, became very popular uh, in 2009 in the wake of the credit crisis, which, you know, you, you, I think could properly assess that's the wrong time for them to become popular, right? Because, uh, because 2008 was, you know, one of the greatest financial crises we've ever seen. And it, you know, dislocated asset prices and the price of insurance against bad events to extraordinary levels. Uh, and at that point, you know, really at that point, if you were, you know, concerned about tail risk, you simply should have had less risk exposure in your portfolio. I mean, I think when we talk to clients about, about tail risk hedging, you know, especially let's say six months ago, the conversation that we would have is, well, what are your objectives and what should your objectives be? And does something like this make sense? A couple of things. Um, are there 
a certain level of losses in your portfolio that are associated with real distress where you're, you know, now your clients, now you don't have cash to pay benefits and you have to liquidate, you know, private assets at 10 cents on the dollar in the secondary market? Or do you have to just make very bad decisions if you lose, you know, if you take a sufficiently large loss? That's a good reason to, to look at tail hedging. And then whether or not you should be doing a strategic longer term tail hedging program really depends on whether there are opportunities available that the market's giving you that really make sense where you can buy back that distress loss at a relatively cheap price uh, in in an environment of extremely heightened uncertainty and high levels of implied volatility you know sometimes the answer is just there isn't a clever hedge that's inexpensive and you should just have less risk um, but really those programs got popular probably at the wrong time call it in 2009 there was a large amount of premium burn uh, among large pension funds and big institutional investors engaged in those kind of programs for several years and i would say by about 2014 you know, hedge fatigue really started to set in. And most of those large, just systematic programs that had a hedge budget that were just systematically buying volatility long-term, short-term, most of those programs one by one started to go away. And what we saw, you know, typically was over time, not directly, but those programs ended up getting replaced by what you described as your third category, the, the the institutional option selling programs uh, out of those out of similar large institutional investors, and it sounds counterintuitive to replace you know option buying programs with option selling programs, um, but again the hedge fatigue had set in quite badly. You know people had been paying you know way too much for for hedges during an environment where hedges were very expensive for several years had lost a lot of money doing so. And, uh, and then at that point, you started to see, you know, the, the, the pension fund consultants uh, publishing white papers on call index call overwriting, for example, and then eventually later on index cash secured put selling, you know, and these types of strategies, of course, have been are, are relatively simple and have been around for a long period of time. Um, but typically, you know, weren't the types of things that you saw in public pensions, for example. Um, but by 2013, 2014, you started to see, you know, call overwriting, you know, pension fund consultants getting significant traction, educating some of their clients about call overwriting, for example, uh, at the short end of the curve. So typically very different types of programs than in terms of the instruments being traded than the tail hedge programs. So typically the older tail hedge programs, often they were longer dated options, deep out of the money puts, uh, variant swaps, things like that. You know, your classical index call overwriting, you know, just think of pull up on Bloomberg BXM, you know, you're thinking about just clients who own equities and then sell maybe an out the money or maybe a slightly out of the money one month call against them, for example. And those types of strategies were really pitched as defensive strategies, uh, which is why in some sense, the link to replacing a lot of those option buying strategies and tail hedges, right? Because the idea is, as a starting point, as a pension fund, as an institutional investor, you're long a bunch of equities. So why not consider taking some portion of those equities, writing calls against them, which reduces the overall net exposure to the equity market, and which also collects some premium, which in a flat market or a down market, uh, actually that premium is, is income collected, right? That was really the argument and the historical back tests and all the evidence at that point suggested, you know, there was a very healthy volatility risk premium 
that could be harvested in, in that kind of manner. And so what you saw was very steady growth of these kind of programs, again, first on the on the call overwriting side, and then eventually by by 2016, big pickup in, in cash-secured put selling as equity replacement among large institutions, you know, in which case they're, again, similar pitch, you're taking an equity portfolio that you already have and replacing some portion of that equity portfolio with the same notional of selling, you know, near the money or maybe slightly out of the money put options uh, a short term again often one month or two month with the the idea being you know this is really again a defensive trade as as it's being pitched right because that out of the money put might only be a 25 delta put it might only have 25 percent of the sensitivity that that an equity does to movements in the equity market locally and you know, in the in the limit, if equity markets go down a lot, your exposure is the same as stock. So actually, you lose less money to the downside in all circumstances. What you give up is is the the big upside move, right? So that was the argument for these kind of programs, and you know, over time, more and more and more money uh, flowed into them. And you know, we can come back to this, but you know, our, our view certainly the last few years has been that far too much money actually came into them to be supported by the market without changing risk premium. That makes sense. And the idea here is to pick up a few percentage points um, in this kind of the search for yield from some of these large plants. Was that the idea? Yeah, it's really, you know, I think the reason a reasonable way to describe it at the time when implied volatilities were higher and premiums were higher, you know, again, as they are now, right, was you're generating some yield, um, you're giving up some upside, but you're buffering the downside, right? And there are its path diversification. You're not doing this with your entire equity portfolio, but let's say you take 20% of your portfolio and you replace it with selling out of the money puts, right? The, the overall profile of your portfolio is that you're going to do better in stable markets or choppy flat markets. You're going to do better in down markets and you're going to do worse in large rallying markets, right? And that's, you know, was viewed as, as reasonable diversification. Right. And how have some of these strategies been working that maybe they got put on a few years ago or whenever they did? And then within the past few weeks, you know, what's going to be coming down the pike as far as some of the headlines and things based on the market action with some yeah. of these strategies? Absolutely. So, you know, these vanilla institutional overwriting and underwriting strategies, uh, you can actually, you can see this, just pull up a a Bloomberg or whatever your favorite tool is and, and compare the total return on the S&P 500 itself with the put index and the BXM index. So put index being SIBO's simple put writing index and BXM being their simple uh, call, covered call index. And what you'll see and take that back as far as it goes, which I believe, I believe it goes back into the 1990s, if I recall. And what you'll see is that <clears throat> up until about 2012 or 2013, which by the way is when large institutional investors started getting involved in a particularly call overwriting in a, in a material way. Up until then, the, the put underwriting and BXM call writing indices um, performed you know, similarly on a total return basis to the S&P, but with, lower, with materially lower volatility. And so delivered a better sharp ratio. 
And that was the argument. And because they were harvesting this risk premium, they were generating some path diversification. Uh, what you see then gradually accelerating after 2012, 2013, 2014 is those indices uh, lagging, the, starting to lag the S&P 500 total returns very dramatically and consistently all the way through the current era and then drawing down in this last, in this last month, you know, consistently with the S&P. And I think, uh, which is, and, and again, my, my view of what really happened there is, you know, the, the, the 30-year backtests were very reasonable things to look at back in 2012 when you were the first pension, you know, large pension fund considering creating a call writing strategy. Uh, the problem was these strategies became very, very popular over the subsequent three, four, five years and attracted, you know, trillions of dollars of notional uh, of short-term options being sold every month out of all of a, a huge variety of institutions. And, you know, option markets are, are big and deep and liquid from the perspective of being able to trade what you need to trade. Um, but it's a very different question whether a single institution can do the trades it wants to do without dramatically moving the market versus can the market itself support huge, you know, a huge scale of selling of one particular kind of thing, relatively short term, you know, S&P options, largely other underliers as well, to some extent, but without changing the dynamics of risk premium. And I mean, the answer was absolutely not. So when you look at the realized volatility risk premium, you know, implied volatility, short term implied volatility versus subsequent realized volatility, you know, you saw a dramatic trend lower and lower and lower and lower, even prior to the onset of this this COVID-19 crisis to, to the point where, you know, there was essentially it didn't look like there was any risk premium actually left in the options that were being sold. And then, of course, that, that risk premium went dramatically negative with the onset of very high realized volatility here. Right. And are you expecting a kind of shift back to some of the defensive strategies looking for the insurance policies rather than the extra yield generation, right? As kind of the cycle is shifting where maybe it's the exact wrong time, similar to back in 2009? Yeah. I mean, I think there will inevitably be some of that. Um, It is worth mentioning that in the last year or two, there has been an uptick in interest and participation by more sophisticated large institutions in you know, hedging programs. So we run some, for example, that are quite large for, for big clients. Uh, I think that there will still be some memory, at least among you know many institutions, of making that mistake in 2009. And you know those institutions probably won't um, be so aggressive to go out and just start buying you know, six month puts on the S&P for 10% of notional or, you know, whatever the kind of the simple hedge would be. Um, but I think that you probably will see some element of people really focusing, you know, much more on downside risk. It's inevitable psychology in this kind of environment. Um, and you asked, you know, the flip side of that question is, you know, do what do I think uh, do I think there will be a significant migration out of institutional option selling strategies at the front end of the curve as a result of this? You know, it's it's not totally clear to me. Uh, I think that on the margin, yes. But, you know, this is very different from, you know, crowded short hedge fund positioning where you see blowups of hedge funds and investor fear of hedge funds that have short tails positions and so forth. Right? This is vanilla call overwriting. 
Um, these are positions which, you know, again, performed no worse than a long equity position would have and probably will start now arguably performing better um, because we'll probably, you know, now we have very high levels of implied volatility and over time probably there will be a bit more risk premium in the market. Um, but, you know, large pension funds move slowly, right? Um, it took many of these organizations you know, five years to to evaluate programs from the beginning of conversations with consultants through board meetings and, you know, putting on a call overwriting program, it's not clear that they're going to be in a, a huge hurry to rush and turn them off. Right. And you mentioned kind of the trade being overcrowded. Um, how, you know, typically I think when people think about strategies that are kind of like buying insurance, you have to think about the price of that actual insurance. And if that becomes kind of an overcrowded trade, then, you know, it seems like there's a fine line between um, being able to pay the right amount for that insurance. And that's why you're paying a fee for this for the specialized asset management. But do you have any thoughts on that piece yeah, I think, you know, at the end of the day, price sensitivity is very important, right? Um, both on a short horizon basis and on a strategic basis. Ultimately, what you saw um, as a result of the increase, steady increase in short-term option selling from large institutions. Uh, so let's talk for a second about the, the S&P volatility term structure. Now, what that means is option prices... Uh, have are associated with what we call implied volatility, which means the Black-Scholes volatility that would justify the price where that option is trading. Now, there's nothing embedded in that idea that like saying Black-Scholes is somehow true in some deep kind of sense. It's simply an accounting mechanism that just normalizes option prices. And short-term option prices uh, and implied volatilities are different than long-term option vol implied volatilities driven by supply and demand and the economics of holding different positions. So the term structure is just think of the graph where the x-axis is the uh, time to maturity of the option and the y-axis is the implied volatility of that option. Now, if you were to look at the S&P volatility term structure in a relatively quiet market environment pre-2008. So, you know, sometime in 2005 or one of the quieter points in, in 06 or 07, what you typically would have seen was that one month implied volatility might have averaged around 12, for example, and longer term two or three year implied volatility might have averaged around uh, 14 or 15. By 2017, 2018, 2019, during the quiet periods in the market, what you saw was uh, was an average level of short-term implied volatility, one month implied volatility of more like eight as opposed to 12. And that two or three month point, similarly 14 or 15. So essentially the result of the heavy increase in selling of options at the front of the curve resulted in just rotation down and steepening of that term structure by, let's call it four volatility points, maybe three or four volatility points on average. And your, that's what, to your point about price sensitivity, that's the point that you're selling. So you used to sell it at 12 and now you sell it at eight. And when you sell an option at, you know, an eight implied volatility and you're selling a somewhat out of the money option, the premium that you're collecting is very, very small. Right, right. And I think, 
let's tr- tr- um, move the conversation over to the retail side of the market um, and talk about some of these ETF products and ETNs and, and structured notes. Uh, you talked about on a couple other podcasts that you did how the U.S. is a little bit different from other countries. Other countries, they have certain products where it could be similar to like an ETN where maybe they're getting 8 to 10% coupon and then they have a certain amount of risk that's correlated to equity prices. So there, there's some downside there. But in the U.S. that we don't really have as many of those type of retail products. Um, but we do have some products that have been linked to the VIX. Let's talk a little bit about what happened going back a few years ago to that blow up and then what's happening now kind of in that retail area. Sure. So to your point, ETNs linked to the VIX have been very popular in the U.S. and traded by you know international folks also. Uh, uh-huh. The way that those work, typically there are short ETNs and long ETNs and the long ETNs typically hold a portfolio of VIX futures which target a particular average maturity. The popular ones are are one month. So they'll hold a mix of first and second month futures. And the long ETNs like VXX would be long those futures. The short ETFs like XIV and SVXC would hold short positions in those futures. And then there's leveraged versions like TVIX and UVXY. Now, those ETFs originated, VXX originated back in 2009, actually, became pretty popular in 2011 and 2012 as a hedging vehicle by retail and RIA, uh, RIAs. And initially, what that caused was some large inflows into those products and into long volatility positions in VIX futures. And so you saw extremely expensive VIX futures as a result of that and a very high rate of loss on those positions and on those products as a result of the you know dramatic overpricing of of VIX futures as a result of those inflows by about 2016 uh, you know retail investors started to figure out that you know losing money wasn't that fun uh, on these types of positions and that one could instead try to either short these products or buy some of the more newly listed inverse products that like XIV, which simply did that for you. And so that trade was very, you know, that was very successful through 2016 and especially 2017. And by early 2018, the size of the, of XIV and SVXE also to some extent um, was really, really incredible. Uh, And there were also leveraged versions of those, of the long ETFs that people were short. The, what happened in February 2018, and this was something that you know ourselves and and other folks in the market had been paying attention to and talking about for a long time. The danger was really that a a, a product like XIV, which is short VIX futures at the one month point with full notional equivalent, um, is extremely risky in the sense that. If implied volatility is low, it's it's really not very hard for implied volatility to double from a low level in a short period of time, because you know going from ten percent vol to twenty percent vol uh, is something that's just not that hard if you if things are really quiet and then something crazy happens and the market sells off four or five percent, which doesn't happen often, but is certainly is very hard to to rule out as a uh, as a possibility, right? And uh, that's essentially what happened in 
uh, on February 5th was the market had been, you know, positioning was very long across the market. Remember, January was just this huge parabolic rally. Uh, you know, inflows into to VIX ETNs had been very dramatic. And what you saw was, you know, a large sell-off on February 5th. Uh, the, the marketplace understood that XIV, you know, was going to... Uh, an ETN that's short VIX futures, right? At the end of the day, if volatility goes up, it has to buy some volatility to cover risk, right? Because that ETN has to manage to a uh, risk target that corresponds to its NAV. And if it's losing money, it has to cut risk unless it's, you know, getting huge inflows that day. And so the market, of course, knew that. And so on February 5th, when the market was down, you know, four or 5% coming into the close and the and implied volatility was up a lot, um, XIV had to buy just a completely preposterous amount of VIX futures on the close in order to rebalance its position much larger than, you know, one can buy in 10 or 15 minutes, especially if everybody knows that you have to do it. And so that caused, you know, this huge explosion uh, across the the VIX term structure and uh, those and that product to be liquidated. Okay, and I'm going to read this sentence here that was from actually another podcast, uh, Macro Voices, and then have you break this down. So, a small group of people figured out how to monetize the contango yield and the term structure and VIX VIX futures. And basically, they were picking up nickels in front of a steamroller. And this was going back to what you referenced, the 2017-2018 debacle there. So how would you kind of frame that to make it easy for someone to understand? Absolutely. So contango and backwardation are terms that refer to the shape of a term structure. So think of, you know, commodities, natural gas and oil, same thing. So an upward sloping futures term structure where longer term futures trade at at higher prices than shorter term futures is said to be in contango. And the opposite when shorter term futures trade at higher levels than, than longer term futures is called backwardation. Now, the the way that if that you generate returns on a short VIX futures position in typical markets is that in normal markets, not stressed markets, you know, when things are somewhat quiet, um, the VIX futures term structure will always be upward sloping. So a one month VIX future might be 14 and a two month might be 16 and a three month might be 17 and so forth. And so... <clears throat> If you were to short a VIX future, you know, three or four months out at 17 and the world was just to stay more or less the same and the the term structure on a constant maturity basis was to stay more or less the same, that future would eventually be, you know, priced at 14 and then, you know, it would settle into VIX spot, which might be at 12, you know, in this example, right? And the reason that the volatility term structure is upward sloping is because that's how the market charges you for insurance, right? The, um, right, regular options decay over time. They pay theta um, VIX futures have to because a VIX future will go typically go up when the market goes down. Um, they're an insurance product, so there has to be an, a risk premium associated with them, or there should be a risk premium associated with them. And the market manifests that through uh, through charging a higher price for longer term longer term VIX futures, and therefore the roll yield as that as that contract rolls down the curve uh, ends up in some sense being the, the price of insurance. Now. In that that steepness of the term structure uh, was extremely high during the heyday of retail buying of 
VIX futures via VXX and TVIX back in 2012. It was also quite high, you know, in some other regimes, like in 2016, uh, for a significant part of 2016, that roll yield was quite high. In 2017, it was also for a while as volatility fell and fell and fell and the, you know, the front of the term structure was quite low, but the term structure was steep. And so a short position made money, again, primarily not on volatility going down, but primarily on the roll yield on, on the steepness of the term structure over time. Uh, when that, that really changed to right, you know, towards the end of 2017 and beginning of 2018, where you saw the VIX futures term structure, you know, at nearly all time lows in the front, but also extremely flat in the front, right? So for example, you know, with VIX spot, at 10 and the front month future at, you know, 10 and a half or 10 and three quarters and the second month future at 11 or 11 and a quarter. And what that means is in, if you're short that, that contract, um, you're short it at, you know, historical lows of volatility. So, you know, if anything happens, there's a lot of room for volatility to go higher, but you're also being paid very little in terms of roll yield to hold that contract at those low levels. And so that's kind of the nickels in front of the steamroller analogy. I mean, in general, being short VIX futures, you know, there may or may not be a steamroller and it might be quarters or dollar bills or something, right? But being short VIX futures at, you know, near all-time lows of volatility with an exceptionally flat term structure um, is is getting paid very little or nothing to take a, a ton of risk, right? But I think many, most of the people... Most, you know, retail investors that got involved in XIV, you know, in 2017, you know, many of them, uh, you know, didn't, weren't educated at all on the mechanics of the product and how it actually made money. Right. Thanks for that explanation. And so kind of in closing, let's just bring it back to current times. We're recording here on um, Friday, April 3rd. Give us any thoughts just on kind of the general market action or what you're seeing out there. I saw a couple of stories, a couple of headlines just talking about the VIX being at all-time highs and just kind of some historic prices that we touched, at least for maybe even a short time. Let's hear a little bit about what you're seeing or any surprises or, or predictions that you might have going forward. Sure. Um, the, I mean, obviously, there's, you know, a tremendous amount has happened in the last six weeks. And that's, you know, tough to go through all of it. But I think thing, you know, what I would point out is, is first, you know, this crisis unfolded very quickly, much more quickly, even than the credit crisis did, you know, which really was a, a series of events building on on each other. Uh, as a result, right, we saw a much larger drawdown in the market much faster than we have um, at any point in the last, you know, 25 years, uh, really since 87. <clears throat> we saw a, a larger spike in realized and implied volatility and much faster than we've seen again since 87. Uh, partly as a result, we had in VIX spot closing at higher levels than it ever closed even during the credit crisis. And we saw realized volatility on a short-term basis, you know, exceeding levels that we saw during the credit crisis. Again, really because every, not necessarily because somehow this is worse than the credit crisis, but just because everything happened so fast and liquidity was so poor, you know, and, and there were so many sources of stretched, you know, dangerous positioning that were unwound along the way. Um, you know, now I think a lot of the, the the really dangerous positioning and explosive short volatility trades and, you know, hedge fund liquidations are, are mostly out of the way in the near term. 
And, you know, markets are calming somewhat. Of course, we're still in a very stressed market with VIX at, you know, in the 50 range, or I guess 47 or so today. Um, but liquidity is gradually improving a bit. You know, intradaily realized volatility is, is much lower. Um, you know, markets are behaving in a bit more stable of a way. And I think from here, you know, the, the questions will end up being more, you know, more about how bad, uh, you know, how long and deep is the global recession we get on the back of this? You know, does, does the data start to stabilize or not? You know, how deep are the earnings shortfalls? Uh, you know, the market um, could easily go materially lower while volatility also slowly ebbed lower, right? We're still at very high levels of volatility. Um, there's many scenarios here, but I think, again, the key thing to think about is in some sense, we've now taken a deep breath with a lot of the the most wildly erratic action out of the way um, in in public markets anyway. I think many of the fireworks that may come are, you know, things that are less liquid that haven't bubbled to the surface yet, but right, issues in private credit, issues in private equity, uh, you know, and uh, all these all these types of things, high yield credit. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, Ben, it was great having you and uh, really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Really nice to be here. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, we encourage you to tell a friend. You can also support the show for as little as a dollar a month through our Anchor website. Just go to www.jellydonutpodcast.com. If you have feedback, find us on Twitter, at JellyDonutPod. Or you can contact us via email at JellyDonutPodcast at ProtonMail.com. As a reminder, all opinions expressed by guests are solely their own and do not reflect the views of their employer or any other affiliated entity. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a basis for investment decisions or advice.